Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 272 and happy new year to everybody listening. This is the first episode of 2024 and it's a big one. This episode is with sports science consultant Joe Club. I've been wanting to get Joe on the podcast for a while and she came on and we discussed in relation to a paper that she released towards the back end of last year which was the top 10 challenges she sees that sports scientists face. So we picked out three of the top 10 challenges and we discussed them. So there's three challenges that Joe brings up. We discussed them in detail. She gives a bit of context on why she chose those challenges um, and we talk about it a little bit. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm sure you're going to take absolutely loads away from this. There are three challenges that we've probably spoke about quite a few times before, but it was great to get Joe's perspective on them. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Just a heads up before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to remind you of our upcoming networking event, which is on Thursday the 25th of January at Ewell Park, Blackburn Rovers. We've got three presenters at the evening, Rob Pulling, under 21 physical performance coach at Blackburn, Russ Wrigley, Head of Academy Sports Science and Medicine, and also Adam Yates, First Team Athletic Performance Coach at Blackburn Rovers. They're all going to be presenting for us. Tickets are available on our website, so go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and then networking events. And just a little heads up, if you are coming with someone else, we have got a two-ticket offer available on the website which allows you to get two tickets for a slightly cheaper price. So go and check that out um, and it'd be great to see as many of the listeners there as possible. Just want to say a massive thank you to our sponsors, The Good Prep. The Good Prep is a meal prep delivery service that provides fresh, ready-to-eat, chef-cooked meals straight to your door. They offer meal plans tailored to your personal goals, current activity level and schedule. The Good Prep works closely with elite level athletes and corporates to develop meal solutions that meet the ever-changing demands of performance and training. Their clients include Brighton Hove Albion, PGMOL, Commonwealth Teams, Gymshark and many more. Their meals are full of all the nutrients you need to keep you in peak performance so you can achieve every goal you set. Plus you can reclaim your time, eat better, move more and reduce food waste too. Their meal plans are designed to guide you through your journey to a healthier you. Take the guesswork out of healthy eating and discover the power of nutrition at thegoodprep.com. Make sure you use the code FFF15 for 15% off your first order. Also, a big thank you to Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? For pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure-validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe, and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximize athletic potential like never before. Whether in the changing room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel, or at home, Hytro has created a simple and effective tool that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. Check them out at hytro.com or email teamsales at hytro.com to find out how Hytro BFR can give your squad a competitive edge. And last but not least, a massive thank you to Rezzle. Go and check them out at Rezzle over on social media. Uh, Give them a follow and check out some of the amazing work they do in the world of VR. And let's get into it. The first episode of 2024, episode 272, with sports science consultant, Joe Club. 
Rezzo is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Rezzo, Rezzo. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezzo Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezzo, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. And I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast the first episode of the new year. So happy new year, Joe Club. Thank you, Ben. Happy new year to you too. Thank you very much for coming on, Joe. This has been a one in planning for a long time now. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, just just waiting for kind of the right topic or the right discussion for us to have. But I'm really I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, there's going to be loads of good stuff. We, we're going to start in a second, um, like we always do on yourself, with a bit of background on yourself, which I'm sure a lot of people have been aware of. But um, we're excited because we're going to we're going to dive into a paper that you've released recently as well. So we'll get into that in a second. But do you want to just kick us off? A little bit of background on yourself, your career, what you've been up to. Absolutely. So um, I am now a sports science consultant. I founded my own um, company a couple of years ago called Global Performance Insights. And through this company, I aim to support sports science practitioners, teams, sports tech companies. I really try to make sports science digestible and impactful. Um, and I'm doing that in a, in a mixture of different avenues through consulting with teams and, and organizations, but also doing a lot around education and content creation and trying to, to make that um, all open access, free science communication, talking across um, YouTube, my blog and stuff like that. And I suppose the, the background to that, the experiences I have that kind of give me perhaps that that footing, hopefully, to try and consult to teams and, and help in this way is um, I've, I've worked as an applied sports scientist for a number of years. I worked for more than five years with Chelsea Football Club initially as an intern back in the day out of Loughborough and then uh, stayed there and worked um, in a number of different roles and different with different coaches. Um, I spent a year at Brighton Hove Albion and then had an opportunity to go out to the States where I worked initially in the NHL, so ice hockey with Buffalo Sabres, <clears throat> and then in the NFL with the Buffalo Bills. Um, so different countries, different team sports, and that has all now culminated into this um, sports science consultancy. Brilliant. And in terms of the paper, we might be at a point now where hopefully there's a few people um, that have read the paper already, um, which I'm sure they've taken a hell of a lot from, but if there hasn't, do you want to give a little bit of context on how that came about? Absolutely. So now in this role is I have fantastic freedom where I get to go and visit lots of different practitioners and teams, whether it's to work with them or, or just to visit them and say hello. I don't have a badge on my you know, chest that people are wary of or worried about giving secrets away to. So, um, as I said, I get I get the, the opportunity to work with with a number of different teams, different settings, um, and travel around quite a lot. One of the trips I did last year in 2023 was uh, I spent a year in Australia around the Women's World Cup, which was a phenomenal experience. 
but along the way also presenting to a number of different teams and visiting different teams across different sports. And I'm, you know, always trying to reflect on these experiences and see where the similarities and perhaps the differences are. You know, I've worked across sports where when I went into ice hockey, I'd never, I'd honestly never watched a game of ice hockey until the first day I arrived in Buffalo. Um, and, you know, then I'm expected to make an impact with sports science. Similarly, then I went, when I went into American football in the NFL, had very little knowledge and experience with the sport. But I think that's what sports science is about. We have transferable skills. So now that I get all this exposure and these fantastic conversations with people and practitioners, I'm always looking for these current or consistent themes. And so I just was making notes throughout the year on that. And I wanted to try and bring that all together, just initially for my own thinking, um, but then share that. And if that if it, if, if, if it brings value to people, then great. So I pulled it all together into this, this white paper or ebook, which is 10 challenges in sports science, um, kind of a reflection from last year. And I talked about each of them in turn, providing links to resources or some of the YouTube videos I've done or some written scientific journals, some papers, publications that are relevant. And then also included as some reflective questions for practitioners to think about each in turn in within their own kind of remit. Um, so that's really how it came about. And then, yeah, I've just made it freely available to download to subscribers of my blog. So my website's globalperformanceinsights.com. And anyone now who joins up and subscribes can also get a link to download that, probably for a limited time. I'm not sure it'd be available forever because it may also become outdated. You know, these um, conversations, these discussions, they change as well. Um, so, yeah, anyone who is listening now who might be interested, they can just go and subscribe to the blog and they'll be able to download um, this report that we're talking about. Perfect. Now, I think reading through the paper, I think there's every point will resonate with practitioners 100%. And I think it was a tough task. We've picked out three. I say we, I picked out three that I wanted to talk about. Um, because I wanted to try and pick some topics that I feel will really resonate with the listeners and something, some things that we've brought up recently that I know people, when we're talking about challenges, these are definitely some challenges that practitioners are going to be facing within football. So I'm really excited to dive into these. So the way we're going to do it is I'm going to bring up the, the initial topic. Um, Joe's going to give a little bit of context around why she basically added that to the list. And then we've got a few questions off the back of it as well. So should we go for it, Joe? Should we tackle the Let's first one? Let's do it. One? Let's dive in. Yeah. Right. So the first one, um, this is probably going to be, uh, this is one that I couldn't skip over because this is something that has come up probably in every episode recently in some way, shape or form. And you've called it the technology tsunami. So do you want to give yeah. a little bit of context around that? Absolutely. So this obviously had to be number one. Um it is a challenge that we face across society uh, and obviously as well in sport, we've all seen a massive increase in the technology that we have available to us and our athletes. So the challenge becomes managing this, selecting the technology that we're going to use, 
um how do practitioners do that because now it's not a question of you know there's not limited options there are so many options available to us so it's deciding which will be most impactful and trying to work out some some strategies or some frameworks for deciding that so in in the paper I talk about um, a couple of published frameworks one from Lorena Torres one from Johan Wind that are available in the literature that practitioners can use I myself talk a lot on my blog um, about this value burden matrix how I like to think of it which is just simply trying to identify technologies and and almost auditing in a very simple way your own technology obviously we want as much as possible we want high value low burden technologies now at times high value and high burden technologies they may be just justifiable right if if the value is high enough but we need to have the awareness of of what value we're getting from each technology and also what burden it's placing firstly on our athletes but also on the staff, the burden on the staff in terms of collection, analysis and dissemination. Um, And of course, we want to avoid those low value um, technologies. And so that's just a really simple rubric almost just to look through your technologies and work out um, where they sit on that simple matrix. Well, that's brilliant. I think one place I wanted to start with on, on this was to get your opinion on obviously the rise in technology, if we were to plot it on the graph, it's going to be pretty steep in terms of how what we've got available. And do you feel that that rise is runs parallel to the sort the level of support that we can offer athletes, players now? Do you feel like it's had a similar sort of increase? Um, I think that is a brilliant question for us to reflect on as an industry. Obviously, in theory, it should. Whether it does is, it's certainly not a simple yes or no. And that's why I think this constant reflection on the technology that we're employing is important because it's a process we need to go through when we're thinking about bringing in a technology, of course is this going to increase the level of support? How is it going to increase the level of support we provide to our athletes? But it's not just at that time point, because then we have to constantly review, okay, how we are using it, is it delivering enough uh, benefit to the level of support? And that might be um, data analysis, because certainly I think we are not getting absolutely everything all the benefits we could out of force plates or tracking technologies yet yeah and and maybe you know of course uh, more advanced data analytics ai capabilities which kind of goes hand in hand with this technology tsunami um maybe that will help us unlock it and get even better uh value out of it um but then also it's how we're in implementing it in the environment again it's not necessarily just a simple get this technology and do this practitioners have a whole host of decisions to make about when do we collect it how do we do it if we just think about force plates there's tons of different tests that we could do how frequently we're going to do it how 
just the how we're doing it is really important um, to constantly reflect upon. So there is probably a whole spectrum of is the technology delivering sufficient support or benefit? Um, and we're constantly thinking about, okay, can we increase this and improve this in any way? Can we use it in a more impactful way? Oh, that's brilliant. I think one of the struggles that practitioners will probably have at clubs is obviously I love that matrix, by the way, that idea of the matrix, because I think that that sums it up really nicely. But just on that as well, if practitioners are right, right, we're going to potentially add this bit of technology to what we are doing. We know the potential that it could bring to the program, but they're not going to truly know it until they've actually got it into the program. And then, mm-hmm. like you've just mentioned, it's then how it's utilized within the program, isn't it? So I suppose yeah. that's the tough bit, bit for a practitioner, isn't it? Is that initial decision because you don't really know what, how it's going to work when it's actually in practice. Yeah, and look, I've definitely made mistakes in the past. I've brought in um, technology that succeeded, and I've definitely brought in technology that has um, that has failed, frankly, and ended up collecting dust in a corner. Why did that fail? Realistically, it probably didn't fit in with the the philosophies and also a realistic workflow of that specific environment at that time. Yeah. Yes, some of that I couldn't learn until I got there, but or until it got there, sorry. But perhaps a little bit more planning, a little bit more reflection on like, okay, what would this look like day to day? Um, and thinking forward with that. And, and of course, then making use of the trials that these most of these technology companies do permit yeah. um, can give a, a realistic, uh, a more realistic, testing out of that that technology um and and also just kind of being honest with yourselves about like like in that case perhaps it was the ego that was saying no no we need to get this we need to get this perhaps it was the the competitive nature the you know keeping up with the joneses with what other teams are doing um when actually you can have less you could have less technology and deliver a better program in theory you know, so really trying to challenge yourselves and challenge each other as, as a staff, a multidisciplinary team about how it's going to work is uh, worthwhile. And I think one thing that could add to that is doing the thought of experiments around how it might fail. What is the worst case scenario? Because we naturally tend to think about this is how it's going to work. This is how it's going to fit in. Well, let's actually be pessimistic and think about how it might fail, why it might fail. That's a great point. Love that. That's brilliant. Um, the other thing on this, Joe, I wanted to ask is with this rise, do you feel like we're just going to um, continue on this? So if it was on that, if we're plotting it on that graphic, is it just going to keep going? We're just going to have more available or, and I know you mentioned AI before, which could impact this as well. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we're going to highlight just a few areas and this is going to be like, right, these are the areas that we know that we can have real impact with. Yes, there's going to be an increase in technology, but at least we know that these are the areas that we need to focus on. I think I think we need to do both. I think technology across society is going to keep evolving and, you know, it's almost like a black mirror scenario of what life even for us in 10 years time could look like. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And so sport is a reflection on that. And people, investors, VCs are seeing the benefits. So I think the technology abundance is going to continue to to grow. And that is why we need to identify what the most important um, ways that we can benefit our athletes will be. And that is different for different sports, um, even within sports, different settings, different populations, different cultures even. Um, and so, again, I, I, I talk quite a lot about, I don't think as practitioners we can transplant what we do. We have to translate it. And even if you're, you'll know, and so many of your listeners, I'm sure as well, even if you're within football, but you've moved teams or you're in the same team, but a d- different manager has come in, you know, the, the nuance of the environment and the culture can influence what works and what doesn't. So this is really important to continually reflect on what's working and what might might work or might fail based on the context of your environment at that time. It's an area I have zero understanding on, Joe, but you brought it up before. So in terms of in terms of AI, where do you feel like this is going to fit with this increase in tech? Yes, great question. And actually, just this week, I have a video come out on my YouTube channel, Global Performance Insights, talking about sports science trends for 2024. And unsurprisingly, you know, the first two points, the first two trends are around technology and AI. Um, AI is quite clearly here to stay, but in many different forms. And I think I think about it in terms of like the technology side. There's lots of technologies now utilizing AI. So we need to have uh, enough knowledge to try and still critically evaluate what their offering is and how they do it. But then also there's AI in terms of us as practitioners and researchers that we can harness. So how can we use chat GPT or similar large language models um, as practitioners to benefit what we do? Because whilst I don't think AI is going to replace all the jobs, I think having a skill set to be able to harness AI yourself is an important um is almost an important skill set. Um, and so I'm hope I'm really hopeful and positive that AI will help us as individuals and yes also as an industry in terms of trying to ultimately trying to support our athletes' health and performance because this is what it all comes down to. But we we've all got a lot of learning to do in this space and um, trying to keep up with and develop the best ways to to leverage it basically if there's practitioners listening which i'm sure there are that are like where do i even start with this and understanding ai and how it can support me is there anywhere that you direct them obviously apart from watching the video <laughs> <laughs> um i'm, I'm going to be biased and do some cringy self-promotion here if that's okay only because I myself, I I write and I share my videos as a means for learning about things myself. Um, And so in identifying AI as a trend, um, really some of the best learning I've done is in collaboration with others in terms of some of the the videos and the blogs. So 
on my blog on Global Performance Insights, in collaboration with Zone 7, which is a company that harnesses AI, we created an AI dictionary, which they can search for. Maybe we can link to it as well in the show notes. Um, just to get basic understanding around some of the key terms. And then in terms of like leveraging chat GPT, there's loads of stuff um, on YouTube. I did an introduction video of how you might use it. There's a free version and a premium version. I did a video as a bit of a comparison for, here's a demonstration of the premium version. This is the difference that you get. So yes, I've been learning through sharing and hopefully teaching. Um, I am not an expert, but hopefully there's some resources there that can be serve as a good starting point. And also please people get in touch with, whenever I share something like that, people then send me recommendations for other tools or papers to read. So I, I love this community discussion as well around these tools. Brilliant. Now we'll put any of those um, links, just check the show notes and we'll put them all in there. Um, so you can go and check that out. Brilliant. So that's the first one. We'll move on to the second one, which is number four on the list of 10, applying female athlete research. I'm really excited to dive into this one. So go on, Joe. Give us a little bit of context around that. Okay. So I want to start by saying that I am certainly not an expert in this area. Yes, I am a female practitioner myself. Actually, before I became a consultant, I hadn't worked with any female athletes. I'd only worked um, in male sports. I have done some work uh, and continue to do some work now with female athletes. And I'm trying to learn from the fantastic experts who have been in this field for a long time. I think it's we've all witnessed an incredible growth in women's sport. And it's, you know, about time, very well justified. Um, and the challenge now, as I, I discuss here, is kind of, again, balancing innovation with evidence. Same with all the technologies we were just talking about. The, when it comes to female athlete research, there is a gender data gap. Women have been historically underrepresented in scientific research. We know that. And there have been a lot of calls to increase uh, female athlete research, rightly so. But as well as increasing the quantity, we need to increase the quality because when you look at um, the research that's gone before, there are methodological concerns. And actually I was just reading a phenomenal review um, in the Journal of Applied Physiology with, with a big group of leading female athlete researchers um, who highlight this, who highlight that there are historically these methodological concerns. That means our understanding of the impact of the menstrual cycle on physiology and sports performance is limited. So I think a challenge for practitioners is trying to obviously support this area. So now it's becoming a lot more common for female athletes to track their, their menstrual cycle and to have discussions around symptoms. And that is, that's brilliant. It is great that we are trying to support our athletes in that way. Where there are sometimes challenges is because we don't actually have enough 
quantity or quality of historic research to make uh, strong evidence-based statements about, for example, the impact of different phases of the menstrual cycle on performance. So our, actually our understanding is limited. And this can sometimes, you know, could has the potential to lead to perhaps scaremongering or even a nocebo effect, right? So a negative placebo effect, whereby drawing attention to the menstrual cycle can lead females to think perhaps they don't perform as well when they're in a certain cycle. And there is not yet, and, and in the paper I, I linked to Professor Kirsty Sale and a tweet that she shared that there is currently, she says, there is no blueprint for performance across the menstrual cycle. Female athletes, please do not fear any phase of your menstrual cycle. And I think this challenge, I, I really wanted to get the wording right on this one because it's a great thing that there is now so much more growth, interest, attention on women's sport, and that we are trying to help support them specific to their physiology. But we also have to be really aware of the limitations in the research we have currently and the knowledge we have currently, so that we're actually not, you know, having almost this negative impact or a potential nocebo on our athletes in the applied setting. Does that make sense? It does, 100%. And it ties in really nicely. We did an episode, um, it was before the World Cup, not sure, quite sure what month, but with George Brown from um, the Australian team and Jack Sharkey as well. Um, they were in their preparation period just before the, the World Cup kicked off. And it's exactly what Georgia was talking about. She was talking about um, the research they've done when they're, when they're working with the players. They've got some players that you know have no impact, so they just get on with training because they, they don't feel it has an impact. And there was some others that they felt like there was more impact. So they grouped them into little groups within the squad. But I think that's an important point, isn't it? It's to get to know if you're working within with a, with a female squad, is to get to know that squad that you're working with and then Absolutely. work from there. Like you say, I love that, again, no blueprint. There's not one way of doing it. Absolutely. And again, you know, all, all credit to Professor Kirsty Sale for that um for that phrase if you like but i think as well there is some confusion around you know symptoms versus the actual menstrual cycle and really it's it's perhaps the symptoms that sometimes if athletes whether there are performance changes or in reality or even if they think they are, it might not necessarily be the hormonal variation because of the menstrual cycle. It's the symptoms that are as a consequence. And I think that's that's where athlete, um, sorry, that's where practitioners can make it make an impact is on trying to help the female athlete manage their symptoms. Um, and these are very varied. Uh, every everyone in in both practice and research um, acknowledges that. And so, yes, again, we are coming back to that individualized or at least a somewhat mailboxing group approach to try and help our athletes. Yeah, I know, that's brilliant. It's great to see all the coaches joining our online community recently. If you're not already a member, 
we have just uploaded a brand new webinar from 292 Performance Founder and also previous performance coach at the English FA, Ben Rosenblatt. Ben presented on some of the secrets of high performance. He discussed the traits of high performers, what makes high performance staff, and also how we can add true value to players. So it's a great webinar. You can check out a preview over on our social media and also our YouTube page, but you get full access to the webinar as well as over 150 plus hours of content available on the community now by going to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign yourself up there, it'll give you a free 30-day trial. After your 30-day trial, you become a paid member of the community. You get invited into our WhatsApp group where there's always conversations going on around different topics of performance, some performance questions that come up from different coaches, and you get insights and opinions and views from coaches literally scattered around the world. So come and join us, the number one football fitness community about. Go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign yourself up there for a free 30-day trial. Come and join us today. Let's get into part two of episode 272 with Joe Club. I think it's going to be really interesting, isn't it, with um, female research in sort of five, ten years' time, when it's, when you've got five years' worth, ten years' worth of extra research collected, that's going to be a really interesting time. But no, I think that's a, a really good point. In terms of future areas of research, because I know there's a hell of a lot being done currently as we mm. speak, isn't there? But in terms of future areas of research that you look at where you think this needs a lot more work, is there anywhere anywhere that sort of jumps out for you? Well, what I've learned, again, from looking to these experts who have spent a long time in with probably very limited resources and attention previously, look, trying to look into that, is, yes, we need to accelerate female athlete research, but that's not just necessarily about um, more, more, more. And it's not necessarily about repeating everything that's been done with men. And now we're just going to do the same because obviously there's different needs and different physiologies that we're trying to understand. But I think the big thing is around the quality and um, and how can we efficiently um, efficiently do this? And so what I love that I'm seeing come up are these collaborations Right. Which maybe historically, again, haven't always happened in other sports, in in men's sports, where there's such walls built up around teams or institutions. Um, So I saw recently in BJSM that there's a uh, an initiative called Femine, which is a multi site initiative across the world where different um, research institutions are going to collaborate and shared data and therefore in their words they are reducing research waste yeah. and it's this this collaboration approach can improve the the quality of the research bigger data sets therefore more statistical power more brains on the operation so hopefully better methodologies from the beginning um, and again as i said a wider sample size so i think it's about not just doing more and more research, but trying to stop and improve the quality by collaborating. And hopefully that will be what makes it accelerate quicker. I think that's another great point, because if we're taking a few WSL clubs, we're talking about the challenges here, top 10 challenges. Coaches 
within those organizations are going to be facing similar challenges, aren't they? So like you say, if you can drop the walls down and, and collaborate in a similar sort of scenario, I know there's going to be slight differences club to club, but it's it's going to be extremely helpful, that, isn't it? So no, I think yeah. it's a great point. I think we've seen as well with, for, for instance, you know, the UEFA injury audit and the research that's come from there. I, I remember when that, yeah, when Jan Ekstrand was first kicking that off with UEFA, that was when I was back at Chelsea probably, yeah, over 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, real trepidation about what that meant and what that looks like. But obviously the value that that has added to our understanding by actually collecting data um, on such a larger scale is clear to see. Same with the NFL. They have um, a research initiative across the whole league whereby there is a third party who make sure that the data is all anonymized and it's secure and therefore no one can access any other team's data. So I think these kinds of approaches clearly are beneficial. They're safe. Um, and so I'd really like to see sort of women's sport leapfrog and get into these kinds of league-wide or wide collaborations um, that bit quicker, hopefully. Yeah, brilliant. The only final thing I had on this point was um, from the research that's been released that, that we're aware of now, is there anything that sort of stands out for you in having a big impact or how it informs actually how we go day to day working with um, female athletes or female footballers? Um, so this is where I have mixed feelings because there's still the balance between like, they're still footballers, right? Yeah. Yes, they're not small men. The physiology is different, but the sports demands ultimately are very similar. Um, so I think there's there is a lot that we can learn and translate across from research that has been done previously. I think where so one area that's really opened my eyes, to be honest, in, in recent times is starting to appreciate the sociology. A little bit more so for example we all know obviously acl epidemic injury rates everyone's very concerned and what we tend to do in response is look at the top end now a number of the high profile acls that occurred last year came from big clubs uh, you know one club in particular which i am sure has fantastic processes in place on the day-to-day, -day, of course, every team can always review and is there anything we're doing better? But I would imagine they've got a lot of the big rocks in place. So what is the difference or what might be the cause? Well, these players who, and this is all hypothetical, so I'm, I'm willing to get into this discussion with others if, if people don't disagree, but perhaps the difference is more related to their training history because okay, maybe now they have similar resources available to them at that very highest level. Of course, that's not the same throughout the world and different age groups, et cetera. But they didn't have the same resources five years ago. They certainly didn't have the same 10 years ago. You know, when we have boys' academies where they're coming in at 13, they're doing day release, they're in training, doing strength and conditioning, doing movement work at 13, for example, they've been training for, from a younger age. 
And so maybe that longer term impact of the gender differences, the gender biases throughout the kind of lifespan of the athlete um, is, is a big factor. It's not easily changed. And I think that's maybe why it doesn't get as much attention or discussion. But I am very interested now in 10 years time, what does the injury, what do the injury rates look like when, you know, girls have been training and have strength and conditioning and movement work and recovery resources throughout also their younger ages. Um, I think that's for me been a big lesson that I've learned from some of the experts about maybe we need to look into some of those those factors and it's not just all about the biology and the hormones. I think that's a, another great point. And the other parts I look at with that is the rise in the female game as well comes with more sponsorship demands, more sort of media demands. There's a hell of a lot with that growth that comes a lot of more demands on the players as well, doesn't there? Not just yes. the game and training. There's a lot of other things going on behind the scenes as well. So yeah, I think there's a lot to consider, isn't there? And like like you say, 10 years down the line, it's going to be great to see um, the progress being made. But Hopefully, yes. You know, was there anything else you wanted to mention on that point? I feel like we've covered quite a bit there. No, I, I, ho- I hope we've done justice to all those <laughs> fantastic experts in that field and just try to highlight that. You know, again, it's just an example of another challenge. I'm certainly not trying to claim that I'm sat here with all the solutions, but it's a challenge for that many practitioners are facing to get the right balance. Yeah, definitely. I also understand that we could probably do a whole episode on each of those, each of these points. Mm. So yeah, no, and the, the final one is number nine. Um, this is something that we've brought up a few times on the podcast, probably not for a little bit. And this is acceleration, deceleration and change of direction. So three areas that I'm sure a lot of coaches have probably been reading around, maybe looking into the research, but Give us a little bit of context why this one was included. Yeah, my focus on these areas, obviously, is a lot of different discussion points in in each of those. My focus here is more around the quantification of each of those. So we know that those in many team sports are really important movement demands. They're important from a performance perspective. So... Um, The paper I talk about there, uh, Martinez Hernandez et al, showed that um, preceding a goal in English Premier League season that they analysed, the second most common uh, movement was a deceleration and the third most common was a change of direction or a cut. So they happen at critical points in the game. And of course, conversely, we, we alongside that, we know that they're also massively important for injury and injury risk. They're often associated with that inciting movement that then leads to an injury or is part of an injury um, incident. And I um, have written a few times about the challenges that we face in trying to quantify these. I've, I've written a couple of times on my blog. I've done a couple of posts on Uh, I've done a post on Sportsmith about quantifying decelerations because um, we know they're important, but, you know, we still lean towards total distance, high speed running. Yes, all important in their own way. But I just feel like we've we've always found it difficult to kind of um, 
decide, well, for instance, we need to determine a dwell time, so a minimum effort duration, the same as we do for a high-speed um, effort. How long do they have to be above a set threshold before it counts? Well, that's one decision. What thresholds are we using? Why do we mirror acceleration and deceleration thresholds, you know, plus 2.5, minus 2.5, when actually they're different demands, and as Damien Harper's research has shown, deceleration is actually more demanding than an acceleration. So why are they exactly the same? Um, so I think we've always had those kinds of challenges that we've talked about. And then in last year, I spent a bit of time um, chatting with Andrew Gray. Andrew and I first worked together a long time ago back at Chelsea. Um, he is um, now based in New Zealand, but he's an Australian um, physio by trade, but a high performance manager who's worked across a number of sports. And very early on, 15 years ago, felt he was not getting enough insight into um, these movements from what the GPS companies were providing. And this is back in the days of, you know, one hertz, five hertz GPS. Um, and certainly, you know, before they were even perhaps even quantifying those movements. I will try to give a very brief and hopefully clear explanation of what he's taught me. But I I did a video again on my YouTube channel with him where he explains this much better way than I'm about to and also provides a bit of a demonstration here, some really cool videos that demonstrate this. But in brief, we think about acceleration as increasing speed, right? And conversely, deceleration decrease. But if you think about in a car, when you if you maintain your speed, but you change direction, you get thrown across the car, right? So in physics, as uh, an acceleration could be a change in speed, but it also could be maintaining your speed, but changing direction. And currently, we don't quantify that at all. Yeah. And so through ADI, his company, Athletic Data Innovations, he is has done some phenomenal work trying to better quantify these change of directions, acceleration, deceleration movement in a way that he would say is complete acceleration um, and the ability to break all those down and highlight those different manoeuvres that are so important in team sports and in football. So, um, yes, watch him uh, explain it in a much better way than I have. Again, we'll try and grab that video from you, Joe, and we can always post that in the show notes so people get a better understanding of that. But right. I think that's a great point because I think where you were talking about the the impactful times in in a game, where you spoke about that, that not not just a change of speed but change of direction, I think you see that, don't you, in in certain players? Like there's probably a perception that they are slowing down, but they're not because they, it's something that they've sort of mastered that skill of changing direction. So I think that's a great point um, and something that probably the some of the best movers and, and when we think about the quickest players, that's probably what they do so well. Absolutely. So it, it's there, uh, whether it's talent ID or whether it's trained. I And I just, I think that we have not been able to capture these movements as well in recent times, even though we all do see and acknowledge the importance of them, because we know, we know ourselves that it's not 
not it's not just running it's not just high speed running it's the combination but um can we can we really drill down into the training load and identify you know these different maneuvers in 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 the game or in training alongside capturing that that is something that we spoke about when damien was actually on the podcast with gareth sanford we spoke about preparing for either the demands of today or tomorrow and tomorrow obviously if again we're predicting the future but if we're seeing any sort of trend like we have recently in terms of the speed of the game these different game models if we're thinking that that's just going to be develop over time, where do you see that or how do you see that informing how we prepare players? Yeah, I think it all links in to those exact applications of like, because ideally if we are quantifying, sufficiently quantifying the demands, then we work back from there, don't we? And that impacts training, training load monitoring, uh, physical preparation it impacts perhaps you know how the warm-up you might do or the individual work for athlete development as well and then of course rehab you know for rehab we work back from training and from the game and so I think all of these applications in terms of athlete physical preparation are almost based on an accurate quantification of those demands and therefore and yeah, it's. I worked with Damien and Gareth on a paper on that very topic about the demands of the games are increasing, but it's not just you know about high speed running. It's about acceleration capacities, deceleration capacities, and so in order for us to prepare the athletes, we need to ideally know what what those demands are. Yeah, 100%. No, I think that ties in really nicely with what they were talking about um, on that episode. Was there anything else that you feel like we've missed on, on this one? No, I would just, I would really encourage people to to listen to Andrew, you know, talk about that because I, I think it's a really key area for us to understand um clearly because you know it's one of the the top 10 as as i as we've talked about today um but everything sort of comes back from all our our as we were just saying our assumptions and our applications start with well what we are saying the the demand is um and so having the ability to to be able to accurately quantify training load which if this direction change acceleration that he's was talking about you know is not current is is currently being overlooked so there's that but coupled with them being able to break down the actual maneuvers and the load from maneuvers and i am just honestly he he's a friend so i'm biased but i'm really impressed now with with how he um is approaching this through his adi platform which by the way is technology agnostic so it just you know runs its algorithms on top of whatever raw data is coming in. And I think that's an important point because linking all the way back to the start and the technology tsunami, we are seeing the technologies, tracking technologies evolve. We're seeing them change. Um, different kinds of technologies like LiDAR technology now is becoming um, more common in, in, in the Premier League, in competition at least. So um, I think uh, I think that's 
those technologies all have the potential to evolve as well. So how are we maintaining our analysis and our understanding of the data and in a way that we can look at it historically as well? Wow. No pressure to the rest of the guests coming on for 2024, because what an episode that was to kick the year off. (laughs) (laughs) Joe, that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. goes without saying that I encourage everyone to go and read the paper, because I know we've probably really skimmed the surface just on a few of the things you've touched on, and we've only touched on three of the 10 points. So I definitely encourage everyone to go and um, read everything else that, that Joe's included on the paper as well. And also the video I know that you referenced um, previously as well. We will put all the links in the show notes for people to check it out. But just want to remind people of where to go to get the paper. So go on to globalperformanceinsights.com. And if you subscribe to the blog, um, then you'll be sent a link to to download uh, the paper. And the other thing, Joe, is I talk about this quite a lot. I love seeing practitioners putting information out that's um, accessible to everyone, talking about topics that are current in our industry. I absolutely love it. And you do it so well. So where would you direct people? I know you've got the YouTube, you've got the Instagram, you use a few of the different social media platforms. Where would you direct people to go? Um, Well, thank you. Yes. Um, So, yeah, my website, globalperformanceinsights.com. That's also the name of the YouTube channel. And then on Twitter and or X, sorry, and Instagram. I am at Joe Club Sports Sci, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So, yeah, I welcome feedback, conversations, questions. I think that our industry as a whole benefits from being a, a creator industry, and you know, and you yourself as well, Ben, with Football Fitness Federation, are adding massive value to that. So, um, I just welcome all everyone's sort of engagement and comments um because as i I said throughout you know i I try and do that as i'm sure you do as well ben because i learn through that process of talking with others or trying to coherently write or speak my thoughts um and so also for younger practitioners i'd i especially at this time of year new year thinking about your career how you can develop as a practitioner um probably a worthwhile uh, reflection as to how they can benefit themselves as well from trying to add value into our community definitely joe really appreciate your time thank you very much for coming on thanks ben what a way to kick off the year i said to joe this is a brilliant episode to kick the year off and puts big pressure on the rest of the year as well doesn't it to deliver this sort of standard so big big thank you to joe for coming on i think well, I'm sure there was a hell of a lot of takeaways for for all the listeners on that episode. I think Joe covers some brilliant stuff. And I do, obviously, we've only touched on three of the challenges that Joe had included in her top 10. Um, you can go and check out the other challenges. I've posted all the links in the show notes, the videos that Joe referred to, obviously linked to the paper and everything else we talked about in the podcast, that's all in the show notes. So go and check that out as well. Um, and also give Joe a follow over on social media. Um, she puts out some great information, breaks down some great topics um, across all things sports science. So go and give her a follow. In terms of takeaways, there's one that stands out for me. The value burden matrix. I absolutely love this. Um, it's something that we touched on quite a bit in terms of technology. But I think the way that Joe broke it down and the way that she described the matrix, I think that 
defines it really nicely for me in terms of um, how much time something takes, the impact it could have, and that'll hopefully help you in making decisions on the approach that you take in terms of testing, monitoring, use of data, use of of technology as well. Um, Also, I think the, where she talks about the menstrual cycle, there's no blueprint, all players are different. I, I referenced the podcast with Georgia Brown, I know Georgia's putting out some great work around the menstrual cycle as well. And that is definitely in line with what Georgia was saying. If you'd not checked out that episode, that is episode 215 of the podcast. That was with Jack Sharkey and George Brown uh, way back in the 30th of November, 22. I can't believe it's that long ago. Um, but yeah, there's some great information that ties in with the menstrual, menstrual health and performance or menstrual cycle and performance in that episode as well. So go and give that one a listen. And then the other thing I thought was really interesting is the collaborations in the female game, which I thought was a great point brought up by Joe and hopefully something that we see happen as well. So I hope you enjoyed the first episode of the year. Please give it a share as always. Send it out to any coaches that you think will benefit from this episode. I know there's a hell of a lot that will. Um, If you've not left us a review, please head on to the Spotify, click the five stars on iTunes, click the five stars and leave us a short comment as well. And check out our upcoming networking event at Blackburn Rovers later this month. And also our sponsors, go to uh, The Good Prep, Hydro and Rezzel. Go and give them at least a follow over on social media, show them some love. And yeah, again, thank you for listening. And I'll speak to you again next week for episode 273.